Chapter 8 of Humorous Readings and Recitations by Leopold Wagner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim's Vox 4. Humorous Readings and Recitations, edited by Leopold Wagner. Chapter 8. A Journey in Search of Nothing by Wilkie Collins Yes, said the doctor, pressing the tips of his fingers with a tremulous firmness on my pulse, and looking straight forward into the pupils of my eyes. Yes, I see. The symptoms all point unmistakably towards one conclusion. Brain. My dear sir, you have been working too hard. You have been following the dangerous example of the rest of the world in this age of business and bustle. Your brain is overtaxed. That is your complaint. You must let it rest. There is your remedy. You mean, said I, that I must keep quiet and do nothing? Precisely so, replied the doctor. You must not read or write. You must abstain from allowing yourself to be excited by society. You must have no annoyances. You must feel no anxieties. You must not think. You must be neither elated nor depressed. You must keep early hours and take an occasional tonic, with moderate exercise, and a nourishing but not too full a diet. Above all, a perfect repose is essential to your restoration. You must go away into the country, taking any direction you please, and living just as you like, as long as you are quiet, and as long as you do nothing. I presume he is not to go away into the country without me, said my wife, who was present at the interview. Certainly not, rejoined the doctor, with an acquiescent bow. I look to your influence, my dear madam, to encourage our patient in following my directions. It is unnecessary to repeat them. They are so extremely simple and easy to carry out. I will answer for your husband's recovery if he will but remember that he has now only two objects in life, to keep quiet and to do nothing. My wife is a woman of business habits. As soon as the doctor had taken his leave, she produced her pocket-book and made a brief abstract of his directions for our future guidance. I looked over her shoulder and observed that the entry ran thus. Rules for dear William's restoration to health. No reading, no writing, no excitement, no annoyance, no anxiety, no thinking, tonic, no elation of spirits, nice dinners, no depression of spirits. Dear William, to take little walks with me, to go to bed early, to get up early. N.B. Keep him quiet. Mem. Mind he does nothing. Mind I do nothing? No need to mind that. 
I have not had a holiday since I was a boy. Oh, blessed idleness, after the years of merciless industry that have separated us, are you and I to be brought together again at last? Oh, my weary right hand, are you really to ache no longer with driving the ceaseless pen? May I indeed put you in my pocket and let you rest there indolently for hours together? Yes, for I am now at last to begin doing nothing. Delightful task that performs itself. Welcome responsibility that carries its weight away smoothly on its own shoulders. These thoughts shine in pleasantly on my mind after the doctor has taken his departure, and diffuse an easy gaiety over my spirits when my wife and I set forth the next day for the journey. We are not going the round of the noisy watering places, nor is it our intention to accept any invitations to join the circles assembled by festive country friends. My wife, guided solely by the abstract of the doctor's directions in her pocket-book, has decided that the only way to keep me absolutely quiet and to make sure of my doing nothing is to take me to some pretty retired village and to put me up at a little primitive unsophisticated country inn i offer no objection to this project not because i have no will of my own and am not master of all my movements but only because i happen to agree with my wife considering what a very independent man i am naturally it has sometimes struck me as a rather remarkable circumstance that i always do agree with her we find the pretty retired village a charming little place full of thatched cottages with creepers at the doors like the first easy lessons in drawing masters copybooks we find the unsophisticated inn just the sort of house that the novelists are so fond of writing about with the snowy curtains and the sheets perfumed by lavender and the matronly landlady and the amusing signpost this elysium is called the nag's head can the nag's head accommodate us yes with a delightful bedroom and a sweet parlor my wife takes off her bonnet and makes herself at home directly she nods her head at me with a look of triumph yes dear on this occasion also i quite agree with you here we have found perfect quiet here we may make sure of obeying the doctor's orders here we have at last discovered nothing nothing did i say nothing we arrive at the nag's head late in the evening have our tea go to bed tired with our journey sleep delightfully till about three o'clock in the morning and at that hour begin to discover that there are actually noises even in this remote country seclusion they keep fowls at the nag's head and at three o'clock the cock begins to crow and the hen to cluck under 
our window pastoral my dear and suggestive of eggs for breakfast whose reputation is above suspicion but i wish these cheerful fowls did not wake quite so early are there likewise dogs love at the nag's head and are they trying to bark down the crowing and clucking of the cheerful fowls i should wish to guard myself against the possibility of making a mistake but i think i hear three dogs a shrill dog who barks rapidly a melancholy dog who howls monotonously and a horse dog who emits barks at intervals like minute guns is this going on long apparently it is my dear if you will refer to your pocket-book i think you will find that the doctor recommended early hours we will not be fretful and complain of having our morning sleep disturbed we will be contented and we will only say that it is time to get up breakfast delicious meal let us linger over it as long as we can let us linger if possible till the drowsy midday tranquillity begins to sink over this secluded village strange but now i think of it again do i or do i not hear an incessant hammering over the way no manufacture is being carried on in this peaceful place no new houses are being built and yet there is such a hammering that if i shut my eyes i can almost fancy myself in the neighbourhood of a dockyard wagons too why does a wagon which makes so little noise in london make so much noise here is the dust on the road detonating powder that goes off with a report at every turn of the heavy wheels does the wagoner crack his whip or fire a pistol to encourage his horses children next only five of them and they have not been able to settle for the last half hour what game they shall play at on two points alone do they appear to be unanimous they are all agreed on making a noise and on stopping to make it under our window i think i am in some danger of forgetting one of the doctor's directions i rather fancy i am actually allowing myself to be annoyed let us take a turn in the garden at the back of the house dogs again the yard is on one side of the garden every time our walk takes us near it the shrill dog barks and the hoarse dog growls the doctor tells me to have no anxieties i am suffering devouring anxieties these dogs may break loose and fly at us for anything i know to the contrary at a moment's notice what shall i do give myself a drop of tonic or escape for a few hours from the perpetual noises of this retired spot by taking a drive my wife says take a drive i think i have already mentioned that i invariably agree with my wife 
the drive is successful in procuring us a little quiet my directions to the coachman are to take us where he pleases so long as he keeps away from secluded villages we suffer much jolting in by-lanes and encourage a great variety of bad smells but a bad smell is a noiseless nuisance and i am ready to put up with it patiently towards dinner-time we return to our inn meat vegetables pudding all excellently clean and perfectly cooked as good a dinner as ever i wished to eat shall i get a little nap after it the fowls the dogs the hammer the children the wagons are all quiet at last is there anything else left to make a noise yes there is the working population of the place it is getting on towards evening and the sons of labour are assembling on the benches placed outside the inn to drink what a delightful scene they would make of this homely everyday event on the stage how the simple creatures would clink their tin mugs and drink each other's healths and laugh joyously in chorus how the pleasant maidens would come tripping on the scene and lure the men tenderly to the dance where are the pipe and tabor that i have seen in so many pictures where the simple songs that i have read about in so many poems what do i hear as i listen prone on the sofa to the evening gathering of the rustic throng oaths nothing on my word of honour but oaths i look out and see gangs of cadaverous savages drinking gloomily from brown mugs and swearing at each other every time they open their lips never in any large town at home or abroad have i been exposed to such an incessant fire of unprintable words as now assail my ears in this primitive village no man can drink to another without swearing at him first no man can ask a question without adding a mark of interrogation at the end in the shape of an oath whether they quarrel which they do for the most part or whether they agree whether they talk of their troubles in this place or their good luck in that whether they are telling a story or proposing a toast or giving an order or finding fault with the beer these men seem to be positively incapable of speaking without an allowance of at least five foul words for every one fair word that issues from their lips english is reduced in their mouths to a brief vocabulary of all the vilest expressions in the language this is an age of civilization this is a christian country opposite me i see a building with a spire which is called i believe a church past my window not an hour since there rattled a neat pony chaise with a gentleman inside clad in glossy black broadcloth and popularly known by the style and title of clergyman and yet under all these good influences here sit twenty or thirty men whose ordinary table-talk is so outrageously beastly and blasphemous 
that not a single sentence of it, though it lasted the whole evening, could be printed as a specimen for public inspection in these pages. When the intelligent foreigner comes to England, and when I tell him, as I am sure to do, that we are the most moral people in the universe, I will take good care that he does not set his foot in a secluded British village when the rural population is reposing over its mug of small beer after the labours of the day. I'm not a squeamish person, neither is my wife, but the social intercourse of the villagers drives us out of our room and sends us to take refuge at the back of the house. Do we gain anything by the change? None whatever. The back parlour to which we have now retreated looks out on a bowling green, and there are more benches, more mugs of beer, more foul-mouthed villagers on the bowling green. Immediately under our window is a bench and a table for two, and on it are seated a drunken old man and a drunken old woman. The aged sot in trousers is offering marriage to the aged sot in petticoats, with frightful oaths of endearment. Never before did I imagine that swearing could be twisted to the purposes of courtship. Never before did I suppose that a man could make an offer of his hand by bellowing imprecations on his eyes, or that all the powers of the infernal regions could be appropriately summoned to bear witness to the beating of a lover's heart under the influence of the tender passion. I know it now, and I derive little satisfaction from gaining the knowledge of it. The ostler is lounging about the bowling green, scratching his bare brawny arms and yawning grimly in the mellow evening sunlight. I beckon to him and ask him at what time the tap closes. He tells me at eleven o'clock. It is hardly necessary to say that we put off going to bed until that time, when we retire for the night drenched from head to foot, if I may so speak, in floods of bad language. I cautiously put my head out of the window and see that the lights of the taproom are really extinguished at the appointed time. I hear the drinkers oozing out grossly into the pure freshness of the summer night. They all growl together. They all go together. All? Sinner and sufferer that I am, I have been premature in arriving at that happy conclusion. Six choice spirits with a social horror in their souls of going home to bed prop themselves against the wall of the inn and continue the evening's conversazione in the darkness. I hear them cursing at each other by name. We have Tom, Dick and Sam, Jem, Bill and Bob to enliven us under our window after we are in bed. They begin improving each other's minds, as a matter of course, by quarrelling. Music follows and soothes the strife in the shape of a local duet sung by voices of vast compass, which soar in one note from howling bass to cracked treble. Yawning follows the duet, long, loud, weary yawning of all the company in chorus. This amusement over, Tom asks Dick for backer, and Dick denies that he has got any, and Tom tells him he lies, 
and Sam strikes in and says, No, he don't. And Jem tells Sam he lies. And Bill tells him that if he was Sam, he would punch Jem's head. And Bob, apparently snuffing the battle afar off and not liking the scent of it, shouts suddenly a Pacific, Good night, in the distance. The farewell salutation seems to quiet the gathering storm. They all roar responsive to the good night of Bob. Next, a song in chorus from Bob's five friends. Outraged by this time beyond all endurance, I spring out of bed and seize the water jug. I pause before I empty the water on the heads of the assembly beneath. I pause and hear, Oh, most melodious, most welcome of sounds, the sudden fall of rain. The merciful sky has anticipated me. The clerk of the weather has been struck by my idea of dispersing the nag's head nightclub by water. By the time I have put down the jug and got back to bed, silence, primeval silence, the first, the foremost of all earthly influences, falls sweetly over our tavern at last. That night, before sinking wearily to rest, I have once more the satisfaction of agreeing with my wife. Dear and admirable woman, she proposes to leave this secluded village the first thing tomorrow morning. Never did I share her opinion more cordially than I share it now. Instead of keeping myself composed, I have been living in a region of perpetual disturbance. And as for doing nothing, my mind has been so agitated and perturbed that I have not even had time to think about it. We will go, love, as you so sensibly suggest. We will go the first thing in the morning to any place you like, so long as it is large enough to swallow up small sounds, where, over all the surface of this noisy earth, the blessing of tranquillity may be found. I know not, but this I do know. A secluded English village is the very last place towards which any man should think of turning his steps if the main object of his walk through life is to discover quiet. End of chapter 8